Hi, this is Matt Finch of Frog God Games, and you're listening to Save for Half. Now that you've cast out the evil sorcerer and taken his treasures and searched his colon for gems, it's time for you to kick back and listen to the Save for Half Sideshow. Welcome to the Save for Half Sideshow, where it's all fun and games until somebody takes a four-sider to the eye. Welcome to the jungle, everybody. Here we are at the sideshow. As ever, DM Mike here, being joined by DM Corbett. No, wait, right. I'm here. DM Jim. Greetings, programs. DM Liz. Hello, hello. And the big kahuna DM himself, James Spawn, author of The Hero's Journey and more Barrel Rider products than I can possibly name. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. If we just ran a list of the stuff you've put out for various games, heck, that'd probably be the show by itself. Yeah, I, I, I stay busy. I'm tired. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> what ah. did James do this week? <laughs> he read his CV. That's That's what he did. <laughs> no, James has spent the past several months writing a second edition of the Hero's Journey. He's... Oh, we should talk about that. Great idea! Almost like it's a sideshow or something. I <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll try and do a throwing questions as questions can, but I'm going to shamelessly use the microphone since I've got a hold of it right now and ask the 800-pound gorilla question in the room. Why a second edition of Hero's Journey? Because the first edition is James's dream version of White Box. The second edition is, what if I chose to take White Box as a chassis and not necessarily feel confined by it? Like one of the original design implements for Hero's Journey First Ed was that you could grab a first or a White Box product and incorporate it pretty seamlessly. Uh, second edition doesn't do that. Um, it is it is its own system that uh, will appear in future role-playing games, actually. I've already written a second game that uses the same uh, rule set. but um, And it's it leans harder into the original themes of the first edition. Uh, the first edition had a lot of visual and descriptive takes, but the rules didn't really... They didn't promote necessarily that style of, of heroic play that I wanted to, to emulate. So that led to doing a second edition. So you were trying to aim a little more toward the narrative um, iconic there, of of the various heroic journeys as opposed to some of the D&D tropes that are unavoidable. Exactly. It's, it's, it's not a narrative game like, say, Fate or, you know, any of the other quote-unquote story games. But I'm definitely leaning more into the themes and tones that are described in the original but do not 
really aren't reinforced by the rules. Yeah, I think where you started is super interesting because, uh, I mean, once upon a time, retro clones, straight up retro clones were cool, but now they're all over the place. And so everybody's confronting, well, how do I make my D20 game based on the old the original fantasy role-playing game special so people will want it and the common move is i'll just use my home campaign as a setting and everything everybody will love it with varying results but it from what i've read of the second edition and what we've talked about before this james it sounds like you're leaning more into rules-oriented mechanics as a way to bust out of that retro clone jungle very much so literally if there's something i wanted to change or i thought could be more appropriate to the themes I'm aiming for versus the setting. There's no default setting, um, but leans one to the themes. I did it like to the point where almost every aspect of the game from the names and numbers of attributes that you have to the available classes, to the available, they're called, and they're not even called classes. They're called archetypes. I thought class was too sterile a term in, in heroic stories. You, you know, you use these characters who are archetypical. So my classes became called archetypes. My races became lineages because Lineage to me felt like a better term to use. You can have different variants of an elf that are all of different lineages in, in fiction. There's there's one lineage in the core book and there will be future versions in other books. Everything from terminology to a number of attributes to the way combat works. I changed my initiative system. The spell system got completely revamped. The monsters all got a brand new entry. Um, and monsters that didn't really fit the themes I'm going for got cut and they were only present because of tradition previously. You know, I had monsters that were quote unquote, not a beholder in the original hero's journey that got cut because you don't see that in high fantasy and fairy tales. So, so it went away and monsters got, I went back to the roots. I went back to fairy tales. I went back to British myth. You know, for example, the, the, the big monster that, that was a huge change was kobolds. Kobolds are completely different than anything that's in the, in traditional D and D. Um, because I went back to the original fairy tale roots and used that for the basis of every creature in my monster section. Well, Liz and I's love of puppy face kobolds to one side. I mean, the reason everybody thinks orcs have uh, pig faces and green skin is mostly because of Gary Gygax. In the old pulp literature, kobolds and goblins and orcs slid around all over the place, whatever that individual author yeah, wanted in for their Tolkien, story. In Tolkien, orc and goblin are technically interchangeable terms. To that end, Hero's Journey has no orcs. It has several different types of goblins. It has a goblin merchant, because there's a famous poem about a goblin merchant. It has traditional goblins. It has a goblin king. But there are no orcs, because that is more sword and sorcery pulp, and that's not the hero's journey. The hero's journey is not murder hobos. It's not Conan. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, Jim is gamed with me enough to know that I can get down with a good murder hobo, but that is definitively not what the hero's journey is. It's the names in the title. You're a hero. It's very, I keep going back to the word fairy tale and that's not quite accurate, but it's very fairy tale influenced classic literature. Folk tales. Yes. Yes. There's a lot of folk tale. Um, I have a friend of mine and we would like to eventually do a companion to the book. And I have a friend of mine who is from Serbia actually researching Eastern European mythology so I can include Eastern European mythological monsters in a, in a follow-up book. See, this is why I love your stuff, because what you're talking about has, uh, you know, fuck all to do with uh, tabletop gaming, except that it gives it an underlying uh, verisimilitude that then comes out later through the game mechanics and the gameplay. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the big important thing, and, and and everything in this book is leaned to that, to the point where every piece of art in it is custom. See, that's a tier above setting. It is, because theme and tone can transcend setting. So when you sit down to play D&D, &D, you might be playing 
Forgotten Realms, which has a different tone than Greyhawk, which has a very different tone than Dark Sun or Ravenloft or uh, Dragonlance. So there's no unifying themes and tones in D&D. Hero's Journey, regardless of the setting, there's that unifying tone to the point where you can actually, there's a human variant in the core book called an errant. You are someone from the real world who got sucked into a fantasy realm because that shows up so much and you never really see people get an opportunity to play it. And I really wanted that to be part of the game. So, you know, what can I do to further these themes and tones was the entire design philosophy. Yeah. When I started reading the second edition, I mean, I was kind of thinking to myself, it's like, I loved the original hero's journey so much. And is there going to be any way for me to look at the second edition and think this is just as good, if not better than the game that I loved to begin with? I've got to say, yes, you, you've knocked it out of the park, I believe. I think this is going to be really awesome. And despite the fact that kobolds do not have puppy faces, I think the write-up of them, their abilities, what they do... I think that's awesome, and it. I think it was the right move. It, it was a matter of being consistent. I, I couldn't have all this stuff that draws on folklore and folktales and then have your kobolds still be homages to D&D. Mm-hmm. You know, I leaned pretty hard into that. You know, the original, uh, one of the things that didn't change in from first to second edition was low hit point totals. Characters do not have a lot of hit points. Monsters need to be scary, and combat is not always the solution. Uh, one of the mechanics that is horrible and brutal um, that I'm very, very proud of is Dragon Breath is save or die. Period. End of story. Woo-hoo. Preach it, brother. <laughs> okay. Talking about hit points, that reminds me. Whether it's the attributes or hit points slash slash mm-hmm. endurance and other things, you've made a real attempt to change terminology yes. from the static, you know, the, or the, the traditional D&D-esque Things like attributes, strength, intelligence, wisdom, hit points, you know, that sort of thing. For something more literary, as somebody who wrote a bit, uh, an RPG 2, I, try- I-, I always felt that was a line that when I was doing stuff is, I want to be more literary to the Victorian era to, to bring out the feel of that genre or that, that setting or that ambiance. But there is something to be said for familiarity. I always felt that was a line. I was never quite sure where I was going on either side of that. Did you feel like that when you were going through Hero's Journey? This At time? first, I really did. At first, I was like, this is going to throw people off. This is going to make it seem unfamiliar. But the more I did it, and the more I felt it improved the subtext of the game, the more comfortable I was doing it. The first term that got changed was I threw out the term hit points, um, and I changed that to endurance. And the reason I did that wasn't necessarily because I didn't like the term hit points, but endurance reflects how long you can keep fighting. Same thing with hit points. But you don't have, you got hit by a sword, take five hit points of damage. Okay, you're in an exchange of blows with this guy, and in the process you lose three endurance. It can represent a diminishing ability to function, both mentally and physically. So in addition to it being literary, it was also pragmatic to do so for me as a designer. And I was like, well, wait a minute, let me look at my terms. So... You know, strength became might because you don't, you don't, you hear about strong heroes, but they are often described as mighty. Things like that. Uh, constitution and willpower got folded into one attribute called resolve because, from a narrative standpoint in these stories, heroes 
endure the things they suffer either by physical or by mental resolve. So therefore, mechanically, why not make them the same thing? Gimli is a dwarf who is physically tough, but Sam is a halfling who is has got mental endurance. So why not have them provide the same mechanical function within the game? And so it's no accident that your uh, default setting or tone and setting is more Tolkien-esque maybe than Very much so. Um, anybody who knows me for 10 seconds knows that I love Tolkien, and I love that style of fantasy. Uh, D&D leans more towards the pulp, so I thought I would lean really hard in the other direction because it's what the way I like to run games. It is very much meant to evoke that, that Tolkien or even Dragonlance feel of high fantasy that's not magic shops on the corner. Magic is still weird and mysterious and dangerous. And it yes. should be. One of the pieces of art we had commissioned for the book, and I very specifically wanted this, was there was an image of a wizard walking into a tavern and everyone stopping and looking like, oh, shit. <laughs> um, because I wanted that. Wizards require an, an insight of 15 to, to be a wizard. And that's really difficult to roll because you need to have insight and intellect to be able to do this, and that keeps them rare. Now, the game can still function in a group without a, without a wizard, but wizards are also the only primary spellcasting class. I cut. The, the original book had 13 classes. This book has eight. But you got to have a high insight if your magic missiles are going to automatically hit. Exactly. How insightful of you, Jim. No, it's not called magic missile. I do have a remarkably similar spell, and yes, it always hits. Arcane dart? Um, It's not called arcane dart anymore. My spell system changed quite a bit. Yeah, I noticed that new... Um, set up. What did what did you think of that? I think it's a nice compromise between the rigidity of Vancian magic and the fluidity of having spell points and the greater choice that comes. And that's with them. the balance I was trying to strike. The equivalent of magic missile in Heroes Journey Second Edition is called Blazing Bolt of Certainty. <laughs> <laughs> hey, for listeners and people who haven't had access to a pre-publication manuscript, why don't you just? briefly architect the your magic system okay so the way it works is you as a wizard you their spells are broken down into three categories they are apprentice apprentice journeyman or master and you know a spell or you do not know a spell and destroy it's not about memorization you have daily spell slots like traditional fantasy role-playing games but the way it works is when you memorize a spell so for example blazing bolt of certainty is actually a subcategory of another spell it is an apprentice spell called Stand Against the Adversary. So you would cast, not necessarily prepare, because it's all just based on your slots, you would cast Stand Against the Adversary, and then you would select one of three effects at the time of casting. So like, you might choose to do it to do Blazing Bolt of Certainty, or you might do Shield Against Stain Strikes, or Ward the Way. Um, you choose at the time of casting, but you only know certain spells. You know a spell or you don't, and you have slots to cast. But when you cast a spell, you choose from different thematically joined spells. So there's one spell called Breathe, Breathe in Silver, which, by the way, is one of my favorite C.S. Lewis, related to one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. To give you an idea of traditional D&D equivalent, when you cast it, and they're all tied to being fairy magic, you cast the equivalent of either like a charm person spell, a sleep spell, or a minor illusion type spell, because they're all linked together through fairy magic. So all the spells are like that. They're all linked thematically, and when you cast, you choose from one element of that theme. Does that make sense? It's super thoughtful and thought through, which I, I just adore. It was hugely important for me. Oh, and one thing I did, I, this is very, very important for, for wizards. 
I gave wizards a new ability where they can intentionally inflict hit point damage on themselves to cast a spell if they are out of the number of spells they can cast per day. And yes, it might kill them, but it lets you have that blaze of glory moment as a wizard where you might want to do this to save the party or take the risk of maybe dying, maybe not, depending on how much damage you take when you cast that spell. When it's time to break your staff and take the Balrog down. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it, 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 that's an epic moment in fantasy literature, and I wanted to emulate that in the simplest way possible. Well, speaking of, one of the new attributes that you have is something called wheel. Yes. And I particularly enjoy that one, which basically it measures the amount by which a character is touched by the hand of fate, mm -hmm. um, either for good or for ill. You either have a great destiny ahead of you or you have a horrible doom that mm -hmm. shadows your every step. And I did that. One of the mechanics I incorporated into the second edition was advantage disadvantage. Um, which, you know, like every other freaking designer, you do. I know, not very original, but you're... <laughs> don't, don't clutch your pearls, I know, Mike. I know, Mike's over there, like, <laughs> grinding his teeth. Oh, no, actually, that's one of my favorite mechanics oh, good, out good. of 5e, to be honest. And what it does is your bonus, if you have a, a bonus in your wheel attribute, that is the number of times you can say, I want advantage on this roll per session. And if you have a penalty, that's the number of times the DM can say, hey, you have disadvantage on this roll. Can you share that with other mm -hmm. PCs, or no. is that solely in no, your effect? No, but one of the things I wanted to include that was really important to me in this game was the importance of the group and the fellowship between adventurers. Um, these people who adventure together, when, when anybody who's ever been in the military or been in through any stressful experience with another individual knows that that bonds you to these people. So at night, at the end of a day, you can do what's called relax around the campfire. Everybody makes a bearing-based saving throw, and if you succeed, you have enjoyed the fellowship of your friends for the evening, and the next day you get advantage on one saving throw of your choice, after you make your roll. That's cool. So again, encourages role-playing. Very much so. Very much so. Oh, and speaking of terminology changes, although I will say for the at the at I notice the attributes still remain at minus two, plus two as the... Mm-hmm range, which is good. I notice you refer to the GM or referee as narrator. Yeah, that, that's always been that's always been my preferred term. I couldn't, and as narrator was kind of, I couldn't think of a better term, and I shouldn't say that as a designer because it makes me sound lazy, but I came to game design, and you talk about my extensive library stuff, and it's, you know, Labyrinth Lord and Swords and Wizard and all that stuff. I came to the OSR as a, as a, what most people would think of as a story gamer. I was a White Wolf guy. What I like about the OSR is the rules get out of the way so that you can tell the game and the story that you want to tell. You can just run the game you want to run and tell the kind of story you want to tell. So to that end, it became narrator because, you know, like the title of the game, The Hero's Journey it's a monomyth. It's a story. And role-playing lets us take that story in different directions that we didn't even expect. So narrator became game master. One of the things I tried to do with my terms was I didn't want everything sounding technical. And mm -hmm. game master does sound technical. The only thing I think sounds more technical is judge. Yeah. I don't know. Referees always struck me as a little dry, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And, and White Box originally used referee. And I think I used referee in first mm -hmm. edition. Yeah, there, there was a lot of things I did in first edition that that I did because that's the way White Box does it. And whenever I encountered that in writing this, I said, OK, what? Well, how would I do it? 
Speaking of first versus second, Mm -hmm. and I know it's hard to come up with a hard and fast percentage, but how compatible would you say first edition Heroes Journey characters are to second? Depending on your class, this is totally a non-answer, but depending on your class, either really, really compatible or not at all. Because five classes, well, six classes really went away, like completely. Um, I, I mean, my game doesn't have clerics. Clerics are gone, mm-hmm. paladins are gone, jesters are gone, monks are gone, barbarians are gone. But but nothing competent game master couldn't get around. Like, uh, remember way, way back when the Order of the Stick webcomic shifted the characters from second edition to third edition? Yeah. And they and they all just heard, all the characters just heard a pop. So, like, if there was an established Hero's Journey campaign, the you know, Halfling's going to wake up one day and, and just hear, pop, hey, I'm not a thief anymore. Now I'm a burglar. Exactly. I'm not no a barbarian. I'm a I'm a warrior now. Every class got some updates and some changes to make them cooler and make them a little more thematic. Like warrior, which was fighter in in first edition, they can now they get bonuses just for being warriors. They can break shields. They can do a rallying cry. I wanted every class to feel like they would always have something to contribute, at least in a minor capacity, outside of their traditional role. So, what would you? want to tell people about some of the new um, character races or lineages that are available in this edition that were not available to players in the original version of the hero's journey well when i cut half orcs it meant i kind of when i cut orcs it meant i kind of had to cut half orcs as an available playable lineage and because i'm leaning into the themes of folk and fairy tales and high fantasy I added a race that I call Changeling, and this is not the third edition Eberron shapeshifter sense. This is you are or Odo on Star Trek D Space exactly. Nine, it's, or it's Beast not, Boy from Teen Titans. Yes, it, it is. It is definitively not that. At first glance, you look human, but then when people look at you, you wait a minute. That person doesn't have irises in their eyes, and their hair is a weird color because you were left in a crib by fairies basically in the mortal world and you grew up strange so you have unique abilities uh because you're strange and 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 a bit out of touch with the normal realm and you actually live a bit outside of time you get a bonus to initiative or it is you are often by default ignored and if there's a scene that you're in and you haven't done anything like you haven't done anything to draw attention to yourself people have to make a role to even notice you're there you know, so it, it's very ephemeral. It's very, for, I wanted that to reinforce the themes of the game because that is something you see in folk tales and fairy tales and high fantasy, but it's not something you typically see in pulp and sword and sorcery and traditional D&D. Now, the, we're, we're working on a companion, and if, if the Kickstarter fund's high enough, we're going to do a companion, um, which will have many additional races. Um, other than that, the rest of the races are all what we've come to know and love humans, half elves, elves, dwarves, and of course, halflings, because every game I write has to have some form of halfling, um, <laughs> including White, even White Star had a halfling because space pirate halflings who are led by their cook is awesome. Yes. Having seen some of the uh, early art for the second edition and every illustration of a halfling has a caricature of you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not that shocked was, at that all. That was by request. I asked my artist, this guy named Nick, and Nick is awesome. He's amazing. Nick Giacondono. I asked, That was one of the things I asked. I said, can you make the halfling look like me? So he did. And I was like, wow, is my chin really that big? He's like, yeah, man, your chin's really that big. I was like, okay, cool. 
<laughs> oh, he na- he nailed it, and caricature can go yeah, so horribly he, wrong, but he, that didn't happen. One he of my it. favorite pieces he did for the book is, and this is going to be in one of the early, like in the attributes character creation section, is there's a shot where the top half is the adventuring party sitting around a tavern table being given a scroll to go off on a quest, and the bottom half is those players in the same positions around a gaming table with the DM got his hands waving around doing stuff. That's one of the early shots, and the last piece of art we're looking to put in the book is the same shot, except the heroes are all riding off into the sunset and the players are all getting up and walking away from the table. That, that's the kind of experiences I remember. And you, you forge friendships from gaming. People you, you know for 20, 30 years. I met my wife at a D&D game. It was really important to me to continue to evoke that. And, and the, the group element of the game and, and the shared experience and the camaraderie is so huge for me as, as a DM um, and important to me as a person that I, I wanted to reinforce that theory over and over again. Well, what I what I like about the art that I've seen in... What's the artist's name again? Giovanni? Uh, Nick Giancondono. I probably am butchering his last name. Let me look it up real quick. Uh, he's, an art, he's from Argentina. He does amazing art. There's an easy habit to fall into when doing these fantasy illustrations of populating your illustrations with the same stock characters. And depending on the uh, taste and talent of the individual artist, very little variation. I mean, greatest artist that ever lived, Jack Kirby, had like 20 stock people that were in the background of every city shot, right? right? And this guy does the exact opposite. Every single illustrated character, you glance and you have a sense of not just their class or their uh, lineage, but their whole personality. Right. Like like even the little halfling that looks like you. It's like when uh, Samantha and Darren showed up on the Flintstones. You know it's them. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's Nick Giacondino, so I was closer than I thought. But yeah, Nick is amazing. Uh, if you Google his name, you'll come up with his art page. He's an awesome, awesome artist. He's done a lot of work. I'm, I've partnered with Gallant Knight Games. Alan Barr runs Gallant Knight Games. He put me in contact with Nick, and he really encouraged me on this project. And without them, this would not be what it is, either in presentation, probably, or in form. Because every step of the way, Alan's like, no, dude, do what you want. Do what you want. Do what you want. Do what you think is right. If you love it and you put it on the page, people will respect that, and they will see that. Don't worry about, oh, you know, your initiative system isn't the same as traditional D&D. You know, if it works mechanically and you like it, it'll it'll be fine. And I really owe him a debt. And it's got a D12. That's right. Talk a little more about Alan Barr and Gallant Games, because one, it se- from my point of view, it seems like one minute you and top tier independent creators like uh, my buddy Diago with his uh, sharp swords and sinister, sinister spells. One minute you guys were top tier indie self-publishers and the next minute uh, Gallant Games um, had you all. It was, definitely wasn't next minute. It was discussions that went on for a very long time that were not bad, but I am fiercely independent. Barrel Rider Games has always been very, I, I'm, you know, mine, you know, I, I want total creative control. And, and I freelanced for Alan for a year on several different projects, and we got to know each other, and he he treats his people amazingly. You know, I've never freelanced for a company that treated their people better in every capacity of the word. It was, he said to me, he said, I don't want to be your boss. I just want to facilitate you get, being able to do what you do without the stress of things that aren't what you do. And when he said that, I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. And I, and so we, we, we signed all the paperwork and all that was done. I said, all right, what do you want me to do? And he's like, dude, I'm not your boss. Do what you want. Keep doing you. You know what you're doing, whether you think you do or not. I will handle getting the artist and getting the layout and, and, and getting the books printed and all that. 
you just focus on writing games because that's what you do. Yeah. Sounds pretty yeah. amazing. If any of my old game company bosses had said anything like that to me, it had been an immediate doppelganger <laughs> check. Yeah. You know, it, it took me a while to be like, wait, there's got there's got to be a catch. There's got to be a catch. There's got to be a catch. And there's not. There's really not. He's smart enough to realize that he already knows how you write and what you make. And he already knows that he likes that. So it's like, that's why he's drawn you in, because he likes your work. It's like, I don't want to change your work because well, the, I like it already. The biggest problem I have with Alan is he will look at a piece of my work and go, you know you're being lazy there. Stop being lazy. And he's never been wrong on that. Yeah, but you know you'll make a better game if you do it the, the way you really want to do it. And he doesn't tell me a specific another way. He'll just look at something and be like, you know you can make that better. And I'd be like, yeah, like, then make it better. That's no small talent. I mean, when I'm art directing other artists, I always try i mean my intentions are golden i just art want to art direct like i always wanted to be art directed but you've got to get to know the artist and start out with here's a great guy i'm just going to trust him to do what he does because that's why i hired him but then you have to come in sometimes and say well no it was a rifle not a pistol <laughs> you know yes and the thing is as a creator you have to be receptive to that make an you editorial know, call that's constructive and helpful you know, i can't tell you how many how many people i know who have i've encountered who freelance who are like well and then the editor told me to do this and i couldn't believe it i was like that's your job like accept criticism you can say i don't think xyz but have a reason for saying it and <laughs> but understand at least on the freelance side of the world that's not what you're about with alan it's always been i want to push you to do what you do and do it better every time um, and he's not afraid to do that. And I think the hero's journey will show what having an, an amazing publishing partner uh, can do for Barrel Rider. Th this game is, is closer to my heart than anything I've ever done before. And prior to that, White Star would have been the thing that was just all soul and love. And it still is. And I love White Star. But this game is, is it's just a love letter to everything I've ever loved about fantasy. And I can't wait for people to see it and hopefully play it and like it. Do you have any plans to retrofit? Hero's Journey to White Star, made a um, sort of sci-fi fantasy storyline. Well, the, the the system itself is it, changed enough that I wouldn't call it white box anymore. This is definitively not white box or swords and wizardry compatible, just by the level of design change that made. That being said, there's already a second game using the same engine already written with others in development. Oh, did you wait? That you're working on, or that you got from somebody else? Oh no, no, no. That, that I wrote. I wrote. I wrote the Hero's Journey. And then I had another game I was planning to release that I changed to the same system as the Hero's Journey. I would love to use the system to do a White Star-esque pulp sci-fi game at some point. But I'm so focused on getting this out the door and, and, and into people's hands because I really think they're going to like it. But it's certainly not outside the realm of possibility at all. It really depends on people's reception. And whether they want it. If I had it in my world, yes, I would want to do a sci-fi game using this this set of mechanics now. Well, even though you and Gallant Knight Games appear to be having the beginnings of a very beautiful relationship, do you intend on still doing things with your own company, Barrel Rider, in the future? Well, it's not. It's it is still Barrel Rider. It's just a pub. It's just a publishing partnership. Okay. So, like, he doesn't own Barrel Rider. I still own Barrel Rider. All it is is a business partnership where I handle the writing, he handles the art and layout, and it's a, it's a joint publication. So we will be seeing, say, both Barrel Rider Games and Gallant Knight Games logos side by side on your books. Absolutely. Awesome. 100%. 
the old deal between Hero Games and Iron Crown back in yeah. the 80s. Yes, where you, you, see, okay. you see joint logos on the books and things like that. Barrel Rider wasn't purchased by Gallant. I didn't halt Barrel Rider to do stuff for Gallant. Right. It, it is a true partnership. And if it wasn't, I wouldn't have signed it. I didn't want to lose creative control over anything I did. And I didn't want to pour hours and hours of work and my, my heart and soul into a game that I don't I don't get to own, or at least I want to know that right off the bat. When I freelance, from, right. you know you don't own it. No matter how much you love the IP or whatever you're working on, you don't own it. Preaching to the choir. <laughs> but with this, I, I still own it. You know, whatever happens between yeah. Barrel Rider and Gallant, if the partnership dissolved tomorrow, I would still own everything associated with the hero's journey. And it would still exist and still and be. that's important. It's hugely important. But yeah, I, I, I know some people I've had ideas for product and it, I've had trouble finding, you know, publishers sometimes. And my friends, some of my friends have always gone, well, why don't you just start your own game publisher and publish it yourself? And it's like, cause I don't want to run a, a publishing business. I want to write games or write modules or stuff. My wife once said to me, I'm so tired of hearing you say how much you hate laying out books. And I was like, well, I'm not very good at it. It takes forever. I hate it. And she's like, I know, stop saying that. So the, the great thing with this is it frees me up to just do what I love and, and do it well. Right. And that that's that's something that can't should not be sold short. It's so much less stressful. I cannot express how much less stressful. And and the things like when the draft was done, he said to me, who would be your dream cover artist for this book? And I said, you're never going to get them. But if you could get them, it would be John Hodgson. And John Hodgson was the art director for Cubicle 7 Entertainment for years. He was the lead artist on the One Ring uh, role-playing game. Plus, he does stand-up and was the PC in the Mac and PC commercials, right? <laughs> Different guy. Less Scott. <laughs> that, that guy's less Scottish. But yeah, and John's done work for like Wizards and Paizo and all the big guys. He's been around forever. And I was like, that would be my dream guy. Alan came back to me three days later. I was like, I got John. What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> so everything about this game is is... Like, I'm literally making my dream game without restrictions other than somebody telling me you're being lazy. Well, I want to say this carefully so you don't misinterpret and get hurt feelings, because I love the cover and the layout and the production on the original The Hero's Journey. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially for an indie published game, it was top tier. But everything I've seen and you've said about this game sounds like this is going to be full-fledged, top game publishing professional product. Absolutely. Um, it is full-color wraparound art by, by John Hodgson. Uh, the interior art is black and white, kind of, there's some grayscale elements because it's pencil art. Uh, but yeah, it's it's top-tier pro level. I, we're still looking like we're going to do a digest because I prefer a digest. But yeah, this is, I, I think this is going to, as far as production values, eclipse the, the first edition. 15 or 20 years ago, they would have said you were crazy to do digest hardbound, but that's like a huge segment of the market now. Oh, it is. Well, and I was anti-digest for years, and then I got in, then I started using digest books, and I was like, wait a minute, I don't play games with a lot of rules in them, and this doesn't knock over my dice, my mini, my computer, my cat, <laughs> you know, my drink. Uh, this is so much easier, and I so much more prefer, you know, A5 or digest size books now that it's just, my mind defaults to it, you know, to the point where the, you know, the, the, the working doc I sent you guys was formatted for six by nine. You know, so we had a sense of how it's going to sit on the page. And to be frank, it's easier to read on an e-reader because it's not double-columned. Not so inconsiderable to keep in mind nowadays. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, I, I could ramble on about how much I love this game forever. <laughs>
and I, I really we're, we're this is being recorded before the Kickstarter, a couple months before, but we're looking to do a um, a crowdfunding. We're we're not one hundred percent certain we're going to go with Kickstarter. It's going to be either Kickstarter or Game on Table with a goal of five thousand dollars to do an offset print run. And we've got a couple. We're we're still tossing around stretch goals. But the only stretch goal, and we don't want to do a whole big, like, dice and minis and all that garbage. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> well, there's two good reasons not to do all the fancy stretch goals. And one is it's a distraction from your primary purpose of the game. And it's the, it's the highest risk uh, you can yeah. take in yeah. terms of production. Absolutely. Um, before the Kickstarter starts, the book will be done well, i shouldn't say 100 done because at this point i, I can't say it but let's go this way the draft is done you guys see that mm-hmm. the interior art is all done the cover art is done it's currently in editing and layout and this is being recorded well before the kickstarter launches so backers can pledge with yes, confidence yes. And, in this uh current kickstarter yeah. environment when it's already laid out before the kickstarter launches that's yeah your first sign and we'll have that page url in the show notes yes and Gallant has never had a Kickstarter that, at least as of this recording, has ever delivered late. So, And they have a track record of, of delivering on time and strong communication. The big stretch goal we're really hoping for is if we hit ten grand, it will let us fast-track a companion book, which is already almost completely drafted as of right now. And that will include new optional rules, uh, new spells. I've heard that there's a way you could play a dog. Yes, one of the new races I've written is called yes. the, the Rover, and it is little. How many stories do you hear? Do you hear about the hero and their loyal sidekick, the dog? You know, that's well, a there tra- was a boy and his dog, but oh, well, that was a movie. That was, that was, that was <laughs> that's a strange one right there. But, yeah, yeah. But yeah. That's a good movie. Don't you think <laughs> that movie? Bang on it, yeah, but if you hear yeah. a journey to run that, there might be some problems. <laughs> <laughs> the the companion will include five or six new lineages. It'll include evil magic, which is not what people will think it'll be. I guarantee you, you won't be expecting this. You new uh, actions that are things like instead of just relaxing around the campfire, you can plan for battle or scout ahead, and, and that'll have an impact on wilderness exploration and the next fight you get in and things like that. I've got combat tactics in there if you want to do you know, like maneuvers, like doing charges or suddenly drawing your your dagger and throwing it real quick as kind of a, a, a loose you know loosey goosey kind of action. There's all kinds of stuff to supplement the rules. It's all optional because I still want to keep the game simple and approachable, but the companion add it's like any command you can pick and choose what you want it's just a bunch of optional rules similar to the white star companion that you can include if you want but are not obligatory and as it stands right now i think there will be one new archetype in the book that the title we're still tossing around but right now the title we're going with is wayfarer uh, one thing i personally dislike and i generally don't put it in my games is multi-classing but the wayfarer is that that classic heroic archetype where at the beginning of the adventure, you have no skills. You're, you're a nobody. And by the end, you've picked up a bit here and there. So, like, if you're a Wayfarer, you might, when you hit a certain level, gain a new weapon proficiency because you've been learning from the fighter. Or pick up a spell because the wizard taught you. Or learn how to act at court because the knight sat down and told you how heraldry and lineage and all that works. And you know how to act. Jack of all trades. See, that's very Appendix N because there's a, a, a large tradition of that in the old mm-hmm. fantasy novels. And, and I wanted to include that, but I didn't want to put it in the core book because it, it can be a bit loosey-goosey to people who 
the, the core book is, is much more straightforward and, and leans very hard into its theme. So all the classes in there are, are very thematic to the point where I added a new class in the core book called the Yeoman. Oh, I love the Yeoman. Uh, I had so much fun writing that. The Yeoman actually started out in the original book. In first edition, there's a class called the Jester. And the Jester was put in the original book because I friggin' love the Jester from old AD&D. Somebody once said, and it may have been one of you guys, I don't remember, said, the hero's journey is like somebody wrote AD&D first edition but didn't really change from OD&D. They just evolved it to AD&D first edition. I was like, the, the Yeoman is the class that says, I will protect my friends. And every day as a Yeoman, you pick one or more member of the party whom you have made a promise to protect for that day. And you grant them bonuses, and as they get more beat up, you get bonuses yourself. So, like, if, if your swarm person you're sworn to protect drops, you might get advantage on your next attack roll to the, to the monkey who did that. And as you go up in level, you can be promised to more than one person. It doesn't have to be another PC. You could be doing the whole, oh, we got to guard this, this noble guy. We're taking him across land. He could be the guy you're saying every day, all right, I'm promised to protect him. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but that bears... yeah. Not mechanically, but the same kind of concept as the halfling in Dungeon Call Classics, right? The ability to go to the aid of yes, others. Yes, mm-hmm. Well, using his luck for others. Yeah, in, in, in a non-murder hobo campaign. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I was wrong then, because we're talking DCC, which is all about murder hobo. The, the commonality between DCC and what uh, James is doing is that both systems are only retro clones by technicality. They've got enough meat on the bones to pop them up above the retro clone classification into their own Right, thing, and which I, I wasn't love. trying to say it was this, you know, even a similar class mechanically or anything. I thought, guess I meant more the concept behind yes. the, the archetype. Well, no, no, I take yeah. your point. I, w- I wasn't gainsaying your point. I mean, uh, when I'm sitting down to play a one-off as a wizard in DCC, the first thing I want to know is who at the table is playing the lucky halfling because you're my mm-hmm. new best friend. <laughs> Well, and and somebody once described the hero's journey when it was first edition as the anti DCC, and I, I I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, the the games do it to both attempt to, they change their systems in an effort to strongly emulate a very specific feel. You know, DCC is balls to the wall, murder hobo, pulps, old school sword and sorcery. The hero's journey is classic high fantasy with strong influence from fairy and folk tales about people being heroics in a dangerous world. So. Yeah, I, I it, okay. Now I'm triggered as a game designer. Can I course. speechify? So, what DCC and your approach in the hero's journey have in common is that they are uh, constructed uh, in uh, completely different styles. But there's more dimen- gameplay styles. But there's more dimensions at play than just that. What they have in common is that they they seem to me to be aimed at all ages and all generations of gamers, which is uh, s- stupid smart just to widen your potential yeah. market. As opposed to the more, I don't want to get in trouble, but, you know, the more typical OSR gamer who's my age, 10 years up and 10 years down, who just wants endless regurgitations of the things we imprinted on when we were new gamers. This is something for everyone to, I mean, a 12-year-old could imprint on DCC or Nail the Heroes on track. the head. This is very specifically, one of the huge design flaws was stop regurgitating. You know, stop doing the same thing over and over again when you know what you want to do and you know you can do it better than by simply describing the same old rules using different words. And I'm not saying one way is right and one way is wrong. There's just one that's more open. <laughs> if you've got a target audience and they're on board for your stuff, I give more power to anybody. I didn't want to keep regurgitating the same thing. 
again, it goes back to Alan pointing that out to me. He's like, you can do your thing. You don't have to always lean so heavily on what's already out there. He has a lot of confidence in me, often that I don't have in myself. And he said, you have enough respect here that hopefully, you know, people will have faith in your product simply because it's your product. And I hope that's true. Yeah, your Kickstarter projection numbers all sound low to me, but I'm prejudiced towards you, I guess. Eh, That's fair. That's fair. We talk all the time. I know how much thought and work you've put into this. Oh, this this has been huge. And it's been so much fun. Every project, when I finish it, and when I finish the draft, I'm like, oh, man, I'm exhausted. I don't want to touch that for six months. This one, as soon as I got the draft done, I literally closed the dock, opened the second dock for the companion, and started working on the companion. I, I am so in love with my own game. I know that sounds masturbatorial, but it's true. I love this no, game so much. I mean, that's how you put out the best product, is to be enthused about what you're working on. Yeah. The reader will know whether or not the writer was truly enthusiastic about what they were doing. Yeah, I, I firmly believe that. And I, and I really think people... And I realized that when I put out the original White Star, and people were like, oh my god, this is awesome. Because I loved writing that game. And I think people will see that when this comes out. That's basic artist writer stuff you've got to have the passion for the project to sustain you through all the hard-ass work and it is hard-ass work (laughs) um god it's worth it it is so worth it well and we appreciate you taking time out to come on and answer some questions does anyone have a final question before we wrap up once this does come out onto kickstarter or whatever platform you decide whatever crowdfunding platform you wind up using mm-hmm. and by the time this does actually get onto the air it should be doing that very thing even as people are listening how fast is gallant knight thinking that they'll be able to get this product in people's hot little hands once you're crowdfunding funds i would say within a few months i i wish i had alan available to ask that more directly that was the one thing i didn't ask him when we were talking about the facts i need <laughs> But yeah, I would say within a few months, you know, three, four months. Whatever the vagarities of getting things shipped to the U.S. and everything like that. I I say this as a disclaimer now, because I say this without being able to consult my publisher. I don't think it would be more than (laughs) six months from the end of the Kickstarter. Can can I suggest an answer for the future? Yes, sir. Since I've sent books to China, Mm -hmm. uh, my answer is as soon as professionally and competently possible. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, that, 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 is, that is the end. As soon as possible. Well, I will keep my fingers crossed because having read the draft, I want this book. I want it. <laughs> it, was, it was so much fun to write. I'm so excited for it. And, you know, I've got the companion I'm working on and I'm working on a couple other books I want to do in the game line. And it, it's just going to be a whole thing. And like I said, there's another game using the same engine that's already been drafted and is in editing. All righty. Well, thanks again, and we appreciate you showing up. Thanks for having me, guys. Sincerely, I really, it's like, you know, it's less a podcast and more hanging out with my buddies and getting a chance to talk shop. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> well, thanks for doing what you yeah. do. I try. I try. Do it as well as I can. Okay. Well, guess that wraps up this sideshow. Uh, I guess say goodnight, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. See ya. Barrel Rider Free The Safer Half Podcast is a production of the Mutt Puppy Games Network and the Gagman Podcast. The Safer Half theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. All player
characters mentioned in this podcast are fictional, and any resemblance to PCs living or dead is purely coincidental. No NPCs were armed in the making of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save for Half. I'm more than 20, it's like a 68 Impala.